0: Hope Church. All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's a privilege and blessing to be here with you today. That's up pretty high. We'll take that down a notch. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of 1 Samuel. We're actually going to finish 1 Samuel today, 1 Samuel chapter 31, and begin 2 Samuel. Chapter one, so that gives you an indication of what's next. We're just going to keep rolling right on through. Um, Just as a a heads up, first, we just want to thank everybody for being here. And if you're visiting with us today, uh, welcome to you. We're glad that you're here with us today. Um, today Today's a special day as we're going to go down to the river um, at the end for baptism uh, for Reese and Selah. And if you're interested in being baptized, but you're not scheduled for that today, um, don't worry. Talk to us. Pray about that. And we're gonna, we're planning, got a couple people interested, uh, we're planning on having another baptism toward the end of August or um, early September. So, looking forward to that as well. It's always awesome to go down to the river <laughs> for baptism. Love it. Um, but one of the things we do here in our church is we generally... Teach through books. Um, sometimes we hit topical things, we'll take a little break in between books to hit specific topics that are uh, pressing. We can always call an audible, as we like to call it if we, we need to address something. Uh, we have the ability to do that. But one of the benefits of teaching straight through books is that, again, we, we don't have the option to just skip over difficult things. We have to address them you know, head on things that go against what we may personally want, things that go against our culture. We just have to address them. And sometimes they're just things that are just difficult. You're like, I kind of wish these verses, this little section kind of wasn't here and I didn't have to deal with it. But it would be easier if it wasn't there. We wouldn't have to deal with it. Well, we still have to deal with it. That's just the reality that we live in. Um, and so we want to you know, address those things, to be courageous, address those things um, head, head on. And so we've had some things come up um, in our study of 1 Samuel that have been difficult. And today is another one of those Sundays where there's just some things in here that are difficult. We have to em- kind of em- just, you know, em- embrace that and, and roll with it. So let's, um, let's read the first seven verses of 1 Samuel 31. We'll pray and get right into it. It says, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchusa, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers." Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not do it, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, for you, God, most of all. We thank you that there is life in you. There's eternal life in you. There's a joyful and abundant life in you. We thank you for your word and that it is truth and that it has instruction for us on every page. Help us to be humble. Help us to learn from you dear God and to follow you fully regardless of what the consequences may be that we would be obedient to you. We ask it in your name Jesus. Amen. One of the things we have to address here in the first seven verses is concerns the consequences of sin. We read a sad story here of Saul and his death, but even sadder still, the death of his son Jonathan and his other sons, his armor bearer, and many men. This came about from what we saw earlier in the book, where um, Saul was disobedient to God and was rejected from being king and David was anointed to be in his place. But instead of just, you know, stepping into the background and being okay with what God had said and accepting the judgment of God, Saul continues to try to, you know, squeeze his fist and hold on to the kingdom, to hold on to his throne. He is unwilling to just relinquish it. Therefore, he has to die at the hand of the Philistines. Jonathan, in his loyalty, you know, an upright and honest and just man, dies with him. Along with his other sons, his armor bearer, and many men. The lesson that we have to remember from this is that when we are tempted to sin, we need to consider the consequences, not just for ourselves, but for other people. See, sin wrecks havoc, it brings destruction, it divides, it conquers, it brings pain, joy. It doesn't bring any joy but grief and death. That's what sin does. As and even you know if we are honest and truthful about it, in the moment, there are a lot of sins that feel good to us. they are enjoyable or bring, bring some temporary pleasure. If they didn't, if it was all pain from the beginning, we wouldn't do have anything to do with it in the first place. sin looks and has a sweet taste but ends with bitterness that's what sin does and we need to remember the consequence of our sin when we are tempted particularly towards grievous sins towards unfaithfulness to God and or to a to a spouse to our children we need to remember what the consequences can be To consider those, to consider those fully, and to stop and ask God for help, to do the wise thing. And the wise thing will require, on our part, humility. The key, one of the great keys to living a life that pleases God, begins in humility. To be humble. To lay aside our pride and to recognize that we do not have all the answers. That we do not know better than God. We'll talk more about that later. But let's move forward and read verses 8 through 13. It says, the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Goboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshon. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshon, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the terremest tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, what we see there is heroic. There's a couple things we'll notice. One, it doesn't say all the men went all night and took the body of Saul. It said all the valiant men. So there's a difference. You know, being, being born, um, you know, male, being born you know, growing up and, and becoming a man does not make one a valiant man. There's, there's a difference between those things. You know, one you just receive biologically. The other is a decision. A decision to be valiant. A decision to be courageous. And the only way we find out about valor and courage is to actually be faced with situations that require Valor and courage Like, Well theoretically You know somebody could say Well theoretically I think I'm a valiant Person or I've, I've decided that's What I want to be but It comes to the test I'm sure there were some who thought They were valiant and then they said we're going to go get The body of Saul and his sons That have been pinned to the wall We're going to travel all night And go and get those and Some of them decided that they actually weren't so Valiant But there's a uh, backstory there, and I don't expect anybody to remember it because it was 20 chapters ago, <laughs> so it's been some weeks. But in chapter 11, the men of Jabesh-Gilead are under siege. They're about to be wiped out by the Ammonites. And Saul, um, at that point, you know, he does a good job, and he rescues them. He went out he sent messengers throughout the land and they gathered their forces and they went and re- rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead so the people of Jabesh Gilead you know knew that they had they owed Saul and his sons you know their lives that they would have gotten wiped out or they would have become slaves um, to the ammonites so they um they had a reason to be loyal and, and they had a reason to do. Um what they did now, the lesson there for us because you know they they traveled all night, they did something brave they had put they put themselves in in great danger, and they did something that if you think about it and I don't ask you to think about it very much, but it's a pretty pretty gross job to have to do it's pretty horrific what 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 had to be done, but you know I don't think as they decided what they were going to do, they went and go, you know what? We're going to be heroes now. We're about to go do something heroic. See, heroes don't, when they're doing something heroic, don't view it that way. They view it that they're just doing what needs to be done. You understand that? True heroes aren't like, well, here's my opportunity to go be heroic. You know, know, people are going to be talking about me being heroic, so I'm going to go do this. That's That's not how it works with true heroes. True heroes, it's the situation. And it's like, and they view it as, this is just what has to be done. So that's what I'm gonna go do. Afterwards, people call them heroes because of what they've done. Sometimes, we need to remember that there are sometimes, you know, just think about what they did as they traveled all night, went and got the body returned. They had to push. There's times in life where we need to push. There's times in life where, you know, you, you have something God has called you to. It, it's going to require some sacrifice. You're not going to get all the sleep that you want. You're not going to get all the relaxation that you want. You're not going to, you know, sit on the couch as much as you want. You're going to have to push. There's times in life where we're called to push. There's times in life where we're called to take a break and rest. The wisdom is to know the difference. See, sometimes people are pushing, 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 and that's not heroic. That's just called being a workaholic. You know, that's just called being addicted to work and, and family and friends and you know the work of, of God suffers because of an addiction to work. But there's also just a time to, whatever it is, to work, to push, to, to do the hard thing. And these men did that, and then after the doing what needed to be done, now imagine this, they, they have pushed their bodies. They've been up all night, you know, all day and all night, and have come back. And then what's the next thing it says? And then they fasted for seven days. They did another hard thing. But that was born out of their grief. They were mourning for Saul, for his sons, for their nation, as this defeat has been significant. People have left their cities. People are, have fled and are hiding in in caves they have reason to mourn well in our lives sometimes we have reason to mourn we need to know that it's okay to take time to mourn in our world of instant gratification we kind of also want instant mourning it's like okay someone dies within three days we've had all the services and everything and then alright then you're good right right Now we need to say that for those who are believers, when a person in Jesus dies, you know, if I when I die, you don't have to mourn for me like like there's no hope. You know, you may miss me a little bit, but if you're a believer too, you know you're going to see me again, right? That's different than like a permanent separation. That's a different perspective, but it still hurts. Even when somebody's a believer and you know you're going to see them again, it still hurts. There's other times to mourn. There's times to mourn when we we know people are are going to their grave without Christ. And and that doesn't have to even be like someone you know personally. I mean, you can just mourn because there are people entering eternity apart from Jesus, that's terribly sad. That's awful. That's as bad as it gets. And you need to, we need to remember that. We need to be motivated by our desire to have more, to, to give joy for and, and less to mourn for. But the men of Jabesh-Gilead were heroic in what they did. Chapter 2, verse 1. And this part of the story, again, it's another kind of rough spot, but here we go. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, remember from last week, Marcus had had picked that one up, he preached on it with um, David And um, his men had left Ziklag with their, you know, wives and children. The Amalekites came and, you know, kidnapped everybody and burned a large portion of it and um, went on their way. And David and his men caught up and rescued, you know, their families. Um, So that's just a very short summary. Uh, but they remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, "Where do you come from?" And he said to him, "And he, sorry." He said to him, "I have escaped from the camp of Israel." And David said to him, "How did it go? Tell me." And he answered, "The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead." Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance, I happened to be on Mount Goboah. And there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? And I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for the anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. And David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner in Amalekite. And David said to him, How is it that you were not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Again, this is one of those scenes that we can find a little bit disturbing. Um, You know, there are... We have to, again, have just context... That there's war all around here. You know There's, there's a saying, you know we say war is hell." and while that's not a literal, not literally true, it's oftentimes about the closest we get on this Earth to actual hell. But we need to un- step back and understand a couple things about this Amalekite who can't, comes to David, we need to understand that he's a liar and an opportunist. He says, by chance, I was on Mount Goboah. Really? He wasn't there to plunder, the, you know, take things off the bodies of the dead? He claims that he's done something that he hasn't done, because we just read how Saul died in the end of 1 of end of First Samuel chapter thirty-one, so he's not telling the truth. And there's just a little. Let me just give this little side note: you know these First and Second Samuel originally are just you know it's one book. Okay, there's not this like division of I guess it's kind of long, so people felt the need that like, we're going to just put First and Second here, you know. But it, originally it's just it's just one book. Um. So, it's just a continuation of, this, of the scene. It's kind of an odd chapter. I mean, it makes sense in some ways, but it, it can disrupt the story if you just go, well, first Samuel, let him walk away. Um, and so, this Amalekite is, uh, is seeking an opportunity to get close to, to whom he views is going to be the new um, king of Israel. His motives are not pure. He makes him, he tries to make himself look in the base, best light and he even, like, he hedges his bets in the sense that so he's like, yeah, I killed Saul, but I mean, I mean, I think he would have died anyway. You know, he's like, he's not, you know, he's like, he thinks David's going to be happy that Saul is dead, but just in case, he kind of wants to leave himself a little bit of an out. He doesn't understand David's view of Saul and Jonathan. And, and, and really it's because he's looking at it like we're tempted to from humanistic eyes that just the rival is dead and therefore you've got something to be happy about. But this is one of those places where we see a little bit more of a God's perspective in David because, you know, God says that he, had, he takes no pleasure at the death of the wicked. David here takes no pleasure at the death of the wicked. You see, it's the human sinful flesh that takes pleasure at the death of the wicked. Or the death of anyone. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And David here takes no pleasure in the fact that his rival, who has tried to kill him multiple times, is dead it does not bring him joy it brings him sadness because david loved his enemy david loved his enemy now you can argue that david's punishment here was too harsh you can argue that with david and you can argue that you know you, you can argue that with him I'm, you know, it, it's a scene of what happened. There's not a commentary on whether that was just or, or you know, too harsh or whatever. Um, I, you know, I think it's one of those things. It's unfortunate. It happens in war. Um, it's, un, it's unfortunate that this, this young man put himself in that position as well. There's a lesson here. Because what this young man tries to do is tries to figure out what people want to hear, figure out what somebody wants to hear, and then tell them that. In this case, he miscalculated. Greatly. A great miscalculation. However, we're often tempted to play this game. We try to figure out where somebody's coming from, what their perspective on a particular issue is, and then we acquiesce we kind of go along with we don't want to (coughs) rock the boat and so we play games we're tempted at least to play games the reality is when it comes to our dealings with other human beings either the truth or a quote unquote half truth or a lie they can all get you in trouble they can all get you in trouble Sometimes you can tell the truth and it gets you in trouble. Sometimes you can tell a lie and it gets you in trouble, and the opposite is true. But we shouldn't be the ones playing games with our words. We need to be truthful. It's better before God to suffer truthfully than to prosper deceitfully. We got that. Before God, it's better to suffer truthfully than to prosper deceitfully. Now we've talked before about there are times, extreme times, like war. And we use the classic example and just, for the sake of time, use it again. If you happen to be alive in 1943 in Nazi Germany and somebody knocks on the door and says, are you hiding deceit? Are you hiding Jewish people here? Deceit is necessary because there's a higher there's something higher at stake but what I'm talking about here is the deceitfulness that we enter into for our own gain this young man is deceitful with the thought of his own gain or his own protection and we need to be very careful about that It's better before God to suffer truthfully than to prosper deceitfully. Now, in verse 17, we read this, and David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. He said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it, publish it not in Gath in the streets of Ashkelon, Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult, you mountains of Geboah, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul not anointed with oil. For the blood of the slain from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. A few quick notes on this um, as we wrap up this morning. One is that it says, you know, this is book in the book of Jasher. This is written. Um, the book of Jasher is, is a, you know, a lost book. Um, it's not part of, this, of the scripture. Um, and so we just need to understand that there are books that con- contain quotations from the scripture that are not part of the scripture. There's also... Um, books or or things that are quoted by biblical authors that are not scripture but because they're quoted by the biblical author that portion becomes part of scripture does that make sense just to give an example of that the apostle Paul um, gives short quotations from a couple of very famous poets and those short quotations become part of scripture meaning they're part of the inspired word of God the inspired record it doesn't again, it doesn't mean that, um, well, just sidestep all that. Just, just If you want to talk more about that, have more questions about that, let me know. But what we have contained in the scripture, what we call the canon, you know, the biblical record from Genesis to Revelation, that is the scripture and is inspired um, and and trustworthy and worthy uh, to be studied and to be followed. Um, but you now, talking about how we approach the scripture, that's a whole other um, subject that we certainly don't have time for this morning, but we take it seriously, and we come to the scripture humbly and say, God's word is truth, let's learn from it. Now, there's a part in here, in this, we see, again, David's care for Saul and for Jonathan, and... Um, and, and it shifts uh, kind of the beginning more towards Saul and as it moves forward um, Jonathan becomes the focus but he viewed them as important enough that this song should be taught to the people of Judah that this song would be taught and so that's um, that's an important important thing here that he cared uh, and it was, it was common in these days when someone died and um, in this culture, it was common that, that you would write a poet, poem or a song um, to remember that person by. We see the deep bond between David and Jonathan that we've seen throughout the book of First Samuel. It's important to understand that this bond is here. I know we have a, a buzzing something, a bee flying around. Uh, if it comes to the front, as long as don't sting anybody, you know, we'll just live with it and <laughs> try, to, try to concentrate because this next section what I'm going to talk about here is important for the day and times that we live in. You know, we, okay, okay, we have taken care of said stinging object or stinging insect so you can no longer fear, especially if you're allergic. We have situations under control. But I, I have to go back and just talk for a minute about verse 26. It says, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. This has been used as a, like a proof or proof text that David was bisexual. I'm just going to go ahead and throw this out there. This, is, this has been used in that way. Um... And really it's an abuse of the literary comparison that David makes to show his love and care for Jonathan. Just as an example of that, if you go back earlier when he says that Saul and Jonathan were swifter than eagles, and we want to time that. We want to time that and have like a race between those two humans and, and literal actual eagles? Or that they were stronger than lions. You test their bite strength. I mean, are there, you know, what they can do with their claws? It's, you know, it, it's a literary device to show the deep care and, yes, indeed, love. But it's not of a sexual nature. It's an, it's an abuse. Um, and it's done, that's done for an obvious purpose to legitimize what the scripture has told us is sinful is gonna to have to put it out there. And I know, you know, and, and you know, in particularly, it's, I, I think I've seen it more, you know, we've seen it more this year than in any other year um, related to LGBTQT, this, you know, virtue signaling and push. Right now, it's like if you're a company and you're on Facebook, a company on Facebook, if they don't, you know, publicly, say they are supporting of that movement, then they are going to be derided as, you know, hateful and everything else. And if you as an individual do not act like you publicly support that, then you also can be viewed as someone who is, you know, mean and ugly and hateful and etc. I also have to address it because we have so many, I mean, Almost use the term loosely, but we have so many ministers in this community who I mean, their Facebook profiles have it, um, and there are so many churches in this town that that have that, that view it at this point that there are basically no sexual sins unless it is something that is unwanted by one person. That that's basically what it's, what it's come to. And so, here's the option we have. As particularly as followers of Jesus. We have the option to seek to justify any of our sinful behaviors or desires. Because the easiest way to get around my conscience concerning any sin, say I'm convicted of a sin of gossip. What's the easiest way for me to get around to that? Well, to convince myself that gossip isn't actually wrong. That's the easiest way to get around it. If I want to lie, convince myself my lying is justified, it's not actually wrong. With any sin, it is this way. And I need to address in that, that there are a n- numerous heterosexual sins. You see, and this is a problem for, for the, the church. When churches stopped calling heterosexual sins, sins. When they stopped calling adultery a sin. When they stopped calling premarital sex a sin when they stop calling pornography a sin, then they, they, they lost an ability to draw a line anywhere because it's hollow to draw a line kind of um, well, we just decided we don't like this so we're going to draw the line here. That's arbitrary. That's arbitrary. So You know, if if you're not preaching against premarital sex and pornography and adultery, there's no basis from which to preach against other sexual sins. You've lost all credibility. We have to be really clear about that. We have to be really clear that every single human that I know, including myself, has committed sexual sin, has offended a holy God, Every human being that's gone through puberty has committed the sexual (laughs) sin. Clarify that. So, all of our minds are corrupt. All of our hearts are corrupt. But the answer isn't to deny our brokenness, our fallenness, our corruption. The answer is to acknowledge it before a humble, loving, and helpful God. So how do we handle... I want to give a bigger picture blueprint, because it's not just this issue. There are lots of issues. So how do you handle any sin... That the culture, particular culture you happen to be in at a particular point in time in history no longer considers to be a sin. Doesn't agree with what the Bible says about it being a sin. What do you do about that? If if the culture decides lying isn't actually a sin, what do you do about that? How do you address it? There are actually cultures that deceit is um, like one of the most um, highest things you can do is to gain someone's confidence and then deceive them. That's like the ultimate. I mean, you're like, what? That sounds so crazy. That sounds so strange. It's real. So how do you handle it? Here are just a few helps. One is to keep reading and studying the Bible so that we keep truth in our hearts and minds. Without consistently being in the Word, we are ill-equipped to handle the thoughts and the um, perspectives and the pushing of cultural norms onto our hearts and minds. And if you don't think that that pushing is occurring, then one, you don't have kids in public school, it's certainly happening there. Two, you don't have a television, because it's certainly happening there. Three, the only station you're dialed to on the radio is like a, a le, you know, legitimate Christian station. That's the only, I mean, four, you never walk anywhere or go shopping in any store. <laughs> I mean, it is being pushed. And you, you can't buy Listerine without receiving that message. That's just reality. So you have to keep the Bible in your heart and mind consistently, consistently, consistently. And the memorization of Scripture will help. Memorize Scripture. The second thing is keep close to the feet of Jesus, the place of humility at his feet, saying, Lord, you know my flesh, you know my mind, you know my heart, and I need to to see as you see. Let me stay at your feet. Three is to maintain love for all. Maintain love for all. You see, we live in this culture that says if you don't fully agree with everything another human being does, then you must hate. That's so contrary to reality and to truth. You know, if, if we loved or hated people based on their sexual sin, we all committed sexual sin. I'm gonna do, hate everybody. You know, that doesn't work. That, that doesn't work at all. We're, we're to love people. Now, in that love, you want what is best for people and you tell the truth. In love, in kindness, with compassion. You see, I've never walked down the street and yelled, Hey Fred! Still looking at at things on the internet you shouldn't look at? You'd be like, what? (laughs) So I'm just not going to do that period about anybody's sexual sin ever. Uh, I, wouldn't somebody, I wouldn't want somebody to do that to me. I want somebody yelling, you, "You think something dirty last week?" The, I mean, I'm just is that the world you want to live in? No, that's not the world you want to live in. So you treat everybody with kindness, respect, compassion. Love everybody. Remember that the gospel is the key issue, not a particular sin. See, the key issue is what a person does with Jesus. Because when we have Jesus, Jesus changes us. You see, we all know John 3.16. Most people know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, and whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. What about 17 through 21? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, notice this. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, did John say they were condemned because of X, Y, and Z sin? That's not the real issue. That's the fruit. The root is belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus means you're not condemned. Don't have belief in Jesus means you are condemned. That's the either or. The rest of it is the details of how those particular sins play out in life. The rest of that's the details. And this is condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So it's, it, there is a connection there that pe- when people are engaged in sin that they don't want to give up, that becomes a barrier to coming to Jesus. Because coming to Jesus means we have to say, Lord, any of my sin is an offense to you. Even, sin, even things that I don't know are a sin yet. I mean, we don't actually have that cognitive understanding, but there's a hum- when we come to Jesus initially... But there's a humility that just says, you know, I don't have it right. I'm not right before a holy God. I've seen so many people come to the Lord and they've continued in you name a particular sin until they read the scripture and then realized, wait, that's not right. I shouldn't do that. You see, because now there's a there's a changed heart. There's a humble heart that's there that then accepts what is written in the Word. See the Word. You see the humble heart that's now been re- regenerated. The person's a new creation is now able to accept the truth of God. But who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. There's going to be a change. And that's what we need to remember that believing in Jesus is life-changing. 1 Corinthians lists a whole list of things and then says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. God changes people. Do not fear the consequences of not going along with cultural trends. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of sound mind. Jesus said not to fear those who can even kill your body. Fear the one who has the power to send your spirit to hell. I mean, that's an initial, like, coming to know him, because, you know, people were going to actually die for believing in Jesus. That was the fear then, Perhaps people's fear now is, that hey, if I believe in Jesus, then people are going to view me in X way. Still have to die to yourself. Die to what you want reputations to be. But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound mind. And lastly, remember that we are ultimately accountable before God and not humans. Again, I want to to do everything in my power to be known as somebody who loves God, who loves people, and actually not even in my power, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to be known as somebody who loves God and loves people, who tells the truth, but our love for people should not be able to be questioned. That we are kind, that we are respectful, that we are compassionate, but yet we still tell the truth. And the issue that we have today that, on that particular issue that is pressing related to our First Samuel passage is that there are, for a lot of people, they're not just saying this is, this is what I want to do, but it's this is what all of our kids should be doing. And this should be promoted among our youth and among our children even as young as kindergarten or before. Because, you know, for a lot of things I'm, I'm like, you know, it is a Jesus issue and we're just going to preach the gospel and let that be that. But you start messing with kids. You, you start messing with preschool kids and, and kindergarten kids and things like that. Now that might actually have to fight. That might change I fight because I, you, you, know, I, I can't, I, you can't just stand by and let that be pushed because there's consequences. Just like there was consequences for other people with Saul and what he did, there's, there's consequences today. And, and we need to be careful that we're just not standing by on the sidelines when it comes to some of these really critical issues. And we're just standing by the sidelines where people are getting destroyed. And I know that that's gonna. That sounds. That can sound. That's mean or bad or whatever to to some people. But again, we have to stand for truth. And love and love wants to help people and protect people. We can't just stand idly by. When that's being pushed. On. Because the reality is, especially for when, when we're real young, why it's so important that our base and foundation is solid, because our, our kids are impressionable, real impressionable. You, you doubt that, just see what they're into, in terms of just like what music they want, or what show they want to watch generally what everybody else is watching and listening to, too, right? They're impressionable. It's rare to have the kid that's just like, everybody in my class likes country, but I like jazz. That's rare. Most of the kids go, everybody else likes country, so I guess I like country, too. Or whatever it is in your particular area, particular place. Kids are impressionable. We have to be careful. We have to stand up for them. All right. I'm going to close with that, but I just want us to remember the gospel is our key thing because the gospel changes lives. And I'd rather, I mean, I wish that we didn't have to deal any, with any of, of those cultural issues because all I really want to do is preach the gospel. Just that we're all sinful. Jesus died for us to take our place so that we could have life in him. All I want to do is talk about that in general terms. Just knowing that we're all sinful. Sometimes we have to address, address things. Our hand is kind of forced. But Jesus changes me. He changed so many of you in this room. He changed so many people who have come through here over the years and are in different places now. Jesus changes lives. We're going to celebrate that this morning as we go to the river for baptism. And I know our time is is running short, but I'd I'd like for us this morning, let's just sing a couple songs um, together um, and, and we'll give like, let's just do like three songs, two to three. You pick, Derek. Um, that lead us to Jesus and the table. We have the bread and the cup here. And we have opportunity. You know, Unless you came this morning, even as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, unless you came this morning, having either last night talked to Jesus about your sin, or this morning, having talked to Jesus about your sin, you probably got some sin to talk to Jesus about. Say, Lord... Wash my feet. Wash my feet. Lord, I've been made new in you, but wash my feet, please. So I can take the bread and the cup, the clean conscience, pure heart, before you. And let's remember the one who loved us enough that no matter what our sins were or are, Loved us enough to go to the cross. Let's remember him. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We love you this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, your grace. Or sometimes we have to talk about different, difficult things, but your word doesn't shy away from from anything in our lives. Thank you that it doesn't. Thank you that you have what's best for us in your heart and mind, even when we are prone to think things very differently. So help us to be humble before you, God. Lord, you know we all struggle with different things to different degrees. And you know us, so please meet each one of us where we are. We ask it in your name, Jesus. We ask for your help. And Jesus, as you went to the cross for us this morning, we remember you. We give thanks for this bread and for this cup. We thank you in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you know Jesus as your Savior this morning, the bread and cup are available there for you to take it. Um, We don't pass it because you might not be ready or somebody next to you or around you might not be ready to take it or, or maybe shouldn't take it this morning. So we leave that to each person's heart and conscience before God. Our job is to tell you that you should take it if you know him as a believer, a follower of Jesus, and you should take it having talked to Jesus about your sin. But that's between you and God, whether you go and and take it or not. We, you know, we we don't hinder you, um, but we do want you to understand your responsibility in that in that way. Okay. Um, so thank you. We love you, and uh, let's sing together.